I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul makes the point that some have accused him of being bold by letter, but not in person. Verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech contemptible. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. We see in verse 1 that Paul compares his demeanor to that of Christ. He uses the word base in the King James Version. The Greek word is tapenas, which means humble. He explains in verses 2 and 3 that the world uses an incorrect measure of boldness when they simply make the determination based upon an overwhelming personal presence. He says, bold by letter, but not in person. That's apparently the accusation leveled against Paul by some in the Corinthian church, according to verse 10. Their expectations were that a person like Paul should have a dominating presence about him in public. But recall 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he said this, "...and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Paul points out that he doesn't use traditional weapons, as in fancy, powerful, persuasive speech. He instead relies on the power of God. you got to love the metaphor of verse 4 when Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The Greek word for stronghold there is used to describe a military fortress and was rarely used figuratively. This is its only usage in the New Testament. In other words, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, Paul is able to disassemble false doctrine, as in the imaginations, logismos is the Greek word there, which means the logic or conventional reasoning, and that reasoning is described in verse 5. 
Paul actually continues with his warfare metaphor down through verse 6 when he says the warfare is the battle against false doctrine. Paul's weapon is God's word and the power of God. The strongholds represent false doctrine. These strongholds or false doctrine are fed by conventional anti-God wisdom. The war is won when there is obedience to Christ and to God's word. And finally, disobedience to God's word is avenged by the power of God's word. Now, don't miss the point here. Paul wants these Corinthians to realize that persuasive speaking doesn't equal sound doctrine. When the carnal mind reasons without direction from the Holy Spirit, false doctrine often is the result, especially when it's accompanied by persuasive speech. Sound doctrine brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul's words there. In other words, sound doctrine doesn't wander out of the bounds of the clear teaching of God's Word. We're also reminded of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. That verse says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, how does a believer walk in victory day after day? Well, here it is. As we embrace the Word of God as our weapon under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, daily victory is the norm, not the exception. A familiar metaphor begs to be used here. Don't judge a book by its cover. Paul says in verse 7, Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? It's all about substance, not personal appearance. His letters would seem to terrify, as he says in verse 9. But his presence is not so much. So much is the contrast that he addresses the perception in verse 10 that while his letters are powerful, his physical attributes appear weak and his speech appears, his words, contemptible, as in worthless. Paul then explains in verse 11 that he practices what he preaches or writes and the consistency, whether in person or by letter, his consistency demonstrates the power of God. Then we go on in verse 12. He's not a self-promoter either. Verse 12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we preach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand." But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Well, here in verse 12, Paul emphasizes that he's not into self-promotion as other people may be. He measures his success by the spreading of the gospel message, pointing out that he was the first to take the message of Christ to the Corinthians, and he was pleased to be used as God's vessel to do so. Well, therein lies his authority to rebuke and counsel these Corinthians. In verse 18, he explains that it's God who does the rewarding when he says this, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. 
Well, conversely, you can't help but notice the implications of these verses regarding others who do promote themselves. And he says, without measure. What is the correct measure? Well, that's found in verses 1 through 11. Results that yield change lives. That's the measure. However, those who promote themselves without measure do so based upon eloquent oratories that stir their audience. They seek to make that their basis of comparison when he says comparing themselves among themselves in verse 12. Ministering the gospel is the measuring stick, verses 14 to 16. Leave those commendations to God while giving God the glory for one's accomplishments in verse 17. That brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talks about the false prophets. Verse 1, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Well, Paul begins this 11th chapter with his comments regarding false apostles by pointing out his special relationship with these Corinthian believers. Paul uses a marriage metaphor in verse 2. His desire is to present these Corinthians to Christ as a chaste, the Greek word hagnos, pure, as a chaste, pure virgin, as in without having been corrupted by false doctrine. He led them to Christ by presenting them with the simplicity that is in Christ. However, just as Satan beguiled Eve, he fears that these Corinthians are in danger of being deceived by those who preach another Jesus. Oh, don't let the word jealous bother you in that passage. The Greek word there, zelos, doesn't hold exactly the same connotation as does its English translation. Its meaning conveys a strong desire or fervent mind toward another. Paul means to demonstrate with this powerful word his intense desire that they should remain faithful to the truth of the word of God. Paul expresses his concern in verse 4 that they might be deceived. Verse 5, For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted, because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself." As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. Now Paul's concern in this passage is that the gifted speakers that he's been talking about here 
are many times able to disguise their error with eloquent speaking and boastings of their accomplishments. Eloquent speaking, by the way, is not an indicator of sound doctrine. Notice what Paul says about his own speaking abilities in verse 6. He says, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been throughly made manifest among you in all things. The Greek word used for the translation rude there is idiotes. Uh, interesting word. Uh, that's the word from which we get our English word idiot. I mean, let's face it. Paul didn't consider himself to be a good orator. I'm reminded of the preaching experience Paul had in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. In Troas, as Paul was preaching, a young man dozed off and fell to the ground from a third-story window and lived to tell about it. Though not a powerful orator, Paul had this. He knew and experienced the power of God in his life. In verse 5, Paul is probably speaking of the apostles back in Jerusalem when he refers to the chiefest apostles. He's not accusing them of being these false apostles, by the way. However, he is pointing out that he, as well as they, uh, are able to warn the Corinthians against going after these false apostles. In verses 7 through 12, Paul seems to indicate the lack of appreciation of his own ministry on the Corinthians' part because he did not require financing from them. He appears to be saying that people just don't tend to appreciate that for which they don't pay anything. As a matter of fact, to emphasize this point, he uses an extreme word, salao, translated robbed, it's a verb, to describe the money he received from other churches while ministering to the Corinthians. While only used one time in the New Testament, ordinarily that word means to take by force. I'm certain they got the picture from his statement there. Incidentally, the reference to Achaia in verse 10 is a reference to the churches established in Greece. Now verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing of his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. In these verses, Paul again makes reference to the notion that his writing abilities seem to surpass his speaking abilities. Here we see that he combats false teachers, whom, by the way, he describes as Satan's people in verses 13 to 15 here. They look right and sound right, but they're not right. There's an important lesson here. All cults contain an element of truth. Do you hear that? All cults contain an element of truth. It's very, 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 very important that believers are not fooled into embracing a cult because of that element of truth rather than the whole complete truth. It doesn't matter how right it may seem. If it denies one or more of the fundamentals of our faith, then it's just wrong. These fundamentals of the faith are non-negotiable principles from God's Word that, well, we just simply can't compromise on. So what are those fundamentals of the faith? Well, I like to boil them down to just five. You might hear them explained by fewer or more, but let me tell you the five that I think are deal-breakers, fundamentals of our faith. First of all, inspiration of the Scripture. Secondly, the deity, virgin birth, and bodily resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, salvation by grace alone through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then fourth, the physical return of Jesus Christ. And fifth, the existence 
of a literal heaven and hell. Now, where does such a list come from? Well, I'll admit, I've gleaned these fundamental doctrines from the body of Scripture, and I've simplified their statement as much as possible. There are many other very important doctrines, but these are the ones that are widely held to be essentials, deal-breakers, if you please, fundamentals of our faith. It's difficult, if not impossible, to have spiritual fellowship with someone who denies one or more of these fundamental doctrines. In verses 13 through 15, Paul blasts the false apostles. They look good, but they're evil. Sometimes we can be too careful in political correctness when it comes to identifying outright error in doctrine. Kind and gentle is nice when appropriate, but failure to identify real evil or false doctrine can lead to the spiritual destruction of many. Now, please indulge me for a moment while I repeat this. Eloquent speaking is not an indicator of sound doctrine. Now, here's the scary part. These false teachers disguise themselves as, according to verse 13, apostles of Christ. That's just as Satan is able to disguise himself as an angel of light, as mentioned in verse 14. The scary result is in verse 15. These false apostles appear to many as, listen, ministers of righteousness. Many politicians today succeed in getting elected to office with a smiling face, fancy speech, and good looks, even though their values do not reflect those of their constituency. It's sad, but many people are just easily fooled by cosmetics. Now verse 16, Paul says, I say again, let no man think me a fool, if otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face, I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak, Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed for evermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aratos, the king kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me. 
and through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. In this passage, Paul refers to his comments in this chapter with the same Greek word in verses 1, 17, and 21. That uh, Greek word is aphrosune. It's translated folly in verse 1 and foolishly in verses 17 and 21. Interestingly, the, uh, the word is used only one other time in the New Testament. That's in Mark chapter 7, verse 22. While the word sometimes means speaking without knowledge, as a fool does, it also was a first century identifier of boasting or bragging on oneself. From the same root, aphron is used in verse 16 and also verse 19, translated fool there, to identify one who does this boasting. That's the context in which Paul's using it here. There's another key usage of a Greek word that should be noted here. The Greek word translated glory. When we speak of God's glory or glorifying God, these Greek words, the noun and the verb, come from the Greek root dox. We get our English word doxology from this Greek root. That's not the word used here in this chapter. It's the verb kakomai and the noun kakesis. These two words, the noun and the verb, they refer to boasting. These Corinthians had a tendency to go after teachers without substance, but who were eloquent at tooting their own horns. Since the Corinthians had fallen prey to such boasting, Paul takes this opportunity to set the record straight. The basis of his comment in verse 18 when he says, "...seeing that many glory, or boast, after the flesh, I will glory," meaning to boast, "...also." So we see some uncharacteristic for Paul's speech in this chapter where he cites his own accomplishments, sacrifices, and hardships in the course of his ministry. Now, as far as physical dominance, Paul points out in verse 21 that he's just too weak for that. However, if you have respect for those who've gone through ministry hardships, well, Paul's resume is exhaustive in that arena. His background is Jewish, that's a plus in verse 22, and his hardships beginning with verse 23 through the end of the chapter are, well, seemingly unbearable for most, including eight beatings and three shipwrecks. He even makes reference to his narrow escape in a basket over the city wall in chapter, in this chapter in verse 33, and that's recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. In other words, these false teachers never paid the price that Paul did to spread the gospel. Yet, to point out all of this to the Corinthians seems like the boasting of a fool to Paul, but obviously it's necessary in this particular instance. Beginning in chapter 12, uh, we have a really interesting account of something that took place in Paul's life. Beginning with verse 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above fourteen years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. 
And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. In this continuation of listing his apostolic credentials from the preceding chapter, Paul sees a need at this point to cite an occasion that marks a turning point in his life. It was a miraculous, direct revelation from God. Of course, each direct revelation from God is miraculous, but the setting of this one is worth noting. It takes place in heaven. Incidentally, the same Greek words defined in chapter 11 for glory and fool are also used here. You may recall in Acts chapter 14, verse 19 regarding Paul, it says this, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. So what happened after that? Well, he got up and walked away. Read it in Acts chapter 14. When Paul says in verses 2 and 3 that he visited heaven, but he doesn't know uh, whether he was dead or in a trance, I think he's probably talking about this occasion in Acts fourteen nineteen. The time frame fits. Anyway, he visited heaven. How's that for apostolic credentials? And just to keep him from being overly boastful about his trip, he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. I think there's no question that this thorn in the flesh was an eye ailment. Paul tells the folks at the church in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, this. He says, Where is then the blessing that she spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. I can imagine that after being pummeled in the head with large stones, that you could end up with an eye problem out of that. Paul was told that rather than being healed, that grace would be manifested in his life instead. Now, this is an instance of trial, not chastisement in Paul's life. Now, if you'd like to understand the difference between trial and chastisement, then I've provided a couple of articles. They're linked here in this page of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can look in the topic section of BibleTrack.org for the two articles entitled, the first one, Trial, Testing, and Temptation, and the second one, Trial versus Chastisement. It's important to understand that trial is indicated here in verse 7 when Paul refers to the messenger of Satan to buffet me. That's the nature of trial. It comes from Satan, but it's monitored and tempered by God as depicted in Job chapter 1, which is, by the way, our biblical primer on the nature of trial. On the other hand, chastisement comes from God. Now, if that's not clear to you, do go back and read those two articles I mentioned. Uh, You need to understand the difference between trial and chastisement. Notice verse 8. Paul requested relief from God on three separate occasions, he says, but was told by God in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And by the way, that just goes to show you, you don't know what environment will facilitate your greatest successes in ministry. But God knows. 
In Paul's mind, great eyesight was important in his ministry. But from God's perspective, real focus was only possible through his impaired eyesight. Paul understood and declares in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And then in um, in chapter 12, beginning with verse 11, Paul indicates that perhaps he should have taken their offerings. Verse 11, I am become a fool in glory. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commanded of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, thank you that we excuse ourselves unto you. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear lest, when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I may be well many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. The problems at Corinth were really, really severe. Paul never wanted to receive financial support from them because of that. This later became a sticky point with the congregation there in Corinth. I mean, if he's an apostle, why is he not being supported by the ministry at Corinth like an apostle is supposed to be supported in their minds? In this passage, Paul expresses to them the reasons he didn't accept financial support. He also defends his claim to apostleship in his previous letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He stresses that he's not in the ministry for the money. Perhaps those ministers who spend more time raising money than preaching the truth of the Word of God should read these comments by Paul. Now, he wasn't opposed to taking money for the ministry, but he did insist that it be given by people who were right with God and in the proper spirit of giving, as laid out in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-15. through 15. Paul deals here with an apparent accusation, which begins in verse 16, that accusation that he's surreptitiously receiving money from them through messengers, probably meaning Titus. So that there's no misunderstanding, he says in verse 19, but we do all things dearly beloved for your edifying. So what will be the state of the church there in Corinth when Paul finally is able to come? 
Well, we see in verses 20 and 21 that his prognosis isn't very good. He fears that he'll find them in the same spiritual state of disarray by which they have been characterized before. He anticipates the necessity of a spiritual house cleaning when he arrives. And that brings us to the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. Some final warnings here. Verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you, as if I were present the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other that, if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you, for though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lived by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong, and this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Well, Paul had been direct and severe in his correction of the Corinthians in the church there. There were some who questioned his authority to do so, as we see in his words of verse 3, where he says, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. In verse 5, Paul asked them to examine their salvation experience. He points out that believers have Christ dwelling within in the form of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's not of his. So Paul asked them to examine the presence of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. If they had been saved, the Holy Spirit's presence would be there. Otherwise they are reprobates. And that Greek word means unapproved or worthless. You may recall from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that Paul's estimation of their spiritual condition was that they were carnal Christians. They were believers who were not allowing themselves to be controlled by the Holy Spirit within. It appears that he throws in this challenge for self-analysis of their spiritual condition before God. And he's doing this to make a point. In 1 Corinthians 3, he was dealing with their divisions regarding spiritual leadership, basically the same problem they're still facing here sometime later. In verse 6, Paul appeals to their good sense when he says, But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. In verse 7, we see that there was some mention from them that Paul was a reprobate. When Paul prays for their perfection in verse 9, he uses the Greek noun katartesis. That means to furnish completely. He uses the verb form of that word down in verse 11 when he says, Be perfect. And finally, we have some words of encouragement in verses 11 through 14. Verse 11. 
Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Well, here we see that, finally, the admonition for harmonious Christian living among the Corinthians. Here are the ways Christians interact with one another when they're led by the Holy Spirit. Paul concludes his letter with these encouragements. So, how do you put into one sentence what Paul desired to see in those Corinthian believers? Well, here's your summary of desired attributes for those believers contained right here in verse 11. First, he says, be perfect. That's the Greek word, the verb, ketartidzo, means to be fit or completely furnished. Then he says, uh, be of good comfort. That's the Greek passive verb, perikaleo, which means be comforted, as in receive this exhortation. Then he says, be of one mind. That's, of course, a call for unity. Then he says, live in peace. Another call for unity. So what's the result? Well, the result is this. Seen right there at the end of verse 11, it says, And the God of love and peace shall be with you. I mean, can't you just all get along? Incidentally, verse 12 raises the interest of people regarding the nature of the holy kiss. We don't really know very much about the holy kiss here, what the exact procedure was in the first century. But it's clear that it was a special greeting ordinarily reserved for family members. According to Charles Rory's reference Bible, the holy kiss was an expression of Christian love and was apparently restricted to one's own sex. Let it suffice to say that one's greeting of a fellow believer should be with the same affection as with a family member. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.